News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, the dairy sector in Canada needs help. Two Canadian universities, actually, have gotten together to try to provide a kind of strategic roadmap to help out. This new report is suggesting that if we don't change supply management, Canada could see half of its dairy farms that are operating right now disappear by the year 2030. One of the authors of this report is our next guest, Sylvain Charlebois, Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. Sylvain, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. So why is it so critical right now for dairy farms? What's going on? Uh, my favorite topic, <laughs> supply <laughs> management. We've been at this for 25 years, and uh, there's been some changes, but not uh, not nearly enough. You see, uh, in the last couple of years, we've, seen, we've signed trade deals, uh, these deals have created a breach in, in, in our supply management scheme. And supply management is really, without getting into details, it's really about producing what we need. But as we allow more cheese and yogurt and dairy products into our, into our market from Europe, Asia, the United States, it's becoming more difficult for farmers to deal with this new reality. Uh, we now have an open economy, and, and supply management was never designed to, uh, to operate within a very open economy. So we're kind of straddling the two systems is what you're saying. Sort of, and that's why we're actually giving dairy farmers $1.8 billion in compensation. So consumers right now, people who are listening to us, uh, well, you're paying twice for your milk and dairy products because as a taxpayer, you are partially subsidizing milk production in Canada. And on the other hand, you go to the grocery store to pay for dairy products, uh, which are typically uh, much higher priced than products you would find in the United States, for example. And so this is just not sustainable over the long term. If we want to make our dairy industry more competitive, we have to think of other ways to do it. Right now, we have about 10,000 dairy farms in Canada. We could lose half of them within 10 years. So our current path is just not sustainable. But I'm sure Canadians, they don't like to hear this, right? Because they want to support Canadian farms. Absolutely. I want to support Canadian farms. I was raised on a dairy farm myself. But that dairy farm no longer exists because, of course, there's been a lot of consolidation in the marketplace. There's been some consolidation all, all over the world. But if we, are, if we are to maintain our quota system, which I think we should, we have to make sure that it also works for Canadians and for our economy. I think there's, there's lots of potential. Right. Our milk in Canada, the milk we produce in Canada is outstanding. It's of high quality. And we've been innovating for ourselves. Uh, what so the, we're arguing in this report is that we should start innovating for the rest of the world as well and grow our dairy sector. So how do we do this then? How do we ease ourselves out of the situation that we are in but we and still protect Canadian dairy farms? So lots of dairy farmers aren't necessarily on board with this, obviously, and they just want to do what they've been doing for the last 20 years. Instead of giving away $1.8 billion to dairy farmers just so they can milk their cows, what we're arguing is that we should actually set up a, 
a, uh, a program to encourage some dairy farmers to exit the industry altogether. So you would get rid of, of farmers that aren't necessarily willing to uh, operate within this new environment. Secondly, you would need to change the mandate of the Canadian Dairy Commission, which is a crown corporation owned by Canadians. Right now, all they're doing is to, is to calculate a fair price for, for farmers without really considering processors like Saputo, Parmalat, Agropur. These companies are struggling right now because they have to pay for their milk at a very high price. And that's why your cheese at the grocery store is very, very expensive. I'm sure you've noticed. Oh, yes. <laughs> so that's, so if, you, if you make Canadian dairy products more competitive... Well, guess what? People will want it more. All right. Interesting stuff for people to think about for sure. Sylvain, thanks so much for your time. My pleasure. Bye-bye. This is Mornings with Simi. Couldn't believe this when I saw this in the news yesterday, that the 1984 cold case murder of Christine Jessup has been solved. You may remember always hearing the name Guy Paul Moran associated with this case. He was convicted, uh, but it was a crime he never actually committed. And now the real killer has been found thanks to the assistance of DNA evidence and using that genealogy system the way they caught the Golden State Killer down in the United States. However, the man they now know did this died back in 2015. Global News Toronto reporter Karen Lieberman has this report. Christine Jessup's brother told me he is relieved and happily stunned knowing his sister's murderer has finally been identified. But there is no happy ending to the case, simply a conclusion, thanks in part to cutting-edge technology and determination. If he, he were alive today, the Toronto Police Service would arrest Calvin Hoover for the murder of Christine Jessup. A stunning development in a decades-old cold case, the murder of nine-year-old Christine Jessup of Queensville, Ontario, in 1984. Through DNA evidence, Toronto police have identified a former friend of the Jessup family as the killer. We positively confirmed the identification of the person responsible for the DNA sample found on Christine's underwear. Calvin Hoover of Toronto, Ontario, was 28 years old in 1984. Jessup was abducted after leaving her home. At the age of nine, Christine Jessup had dreams of her own. She always wanted to be a veterinarian. She loved animals. And she had her little dog, Freckles, the beagle. She was just a normal little child. But the hope for a bright future snatched away from her 36 years ago. On October 3, 1984, Christine Jessup disappeared. I saw her off to school. She was happy, go lucky, away she went in the bus. She had come home from school that afternoon and was supposed to meet a friend at the park, but she never showed. She was last seen at a variety store close to her home in Queensville, Ontario, buying a pack of bubble gum. I called all her friends to see if she'd gone with them. It wasn't just sort of call the police right away. No, we looked everywhere. And then finally I thought, well, I think we better call the police. There is something in the back of your mind, you know, when you can't find them right away. Something's not right. Police had been notified of her disappearance, and for months people searched for the nine-year-old girl. Hundreds of police, citizen volunteers, tracking dogs, and aircraft are involved in the search in heavily wooded areas 30 miles north of Toronto. You could see them searching across the fields, oh, for miles. They searched different areas. We went out and searched. Her body was discovered nearly three months later. She'd been sexually assaulted and stabbed. 
Her brother, who always held out hope the killer would be found, suspected it was someone they knew. I, I, from day one, truly believed it was someone that knew our family, knew my dad was in jail, and knew that we were going to visit him that day, and that came down to four people. As for how Calvin Hoover was identified, Toronto Police explained they made use of a relatively new crime-fighting tool called genetic genealogy. What we do is we start with an unidentified semen uh, stain that has a DNA profile to it. This is submitted to a lab, and from that profile, they build out a potential familial lineage. Retired Detective Sergeant Stacy Gallant had heard about other cases in the United States being resolved using this technology, so he pushed to have it used in the Jessup case. It was still an active case. We've been working on it for years. Um, so about a month before I left uh, and retired is when the proposal was authorized and the funds were granted. Investigators shared news of the identification with the Jessups and Guy Paul Moret, the family's neighbour who had been wrongfully convicted of the murder. He was acquitted in 1995 after new DNA evidence emerged. Moran released a statement expressing relief for the family, adding, I was sure that one day DNA would reveal the real killer, and now it has. Police are hoping this photograph of Calvin Hoover from the late 1990s may jog someone's memory and shed light on where he was and what he was up to from the time of Jessup's murder to his death in 2015. The chief says genetic genealogy testing is a tool they will continue to use. We're just not going to give up, and somebody is always going to be looking. Now, Kenny Jessup, Christine's brother, said it was a miracle that police solved the case, and he knows how hard they worked. He said he and his mother, Janet, owe the investigators everything and will be forever grateful to them. We also just got a hold of the mother of the killer, Calvin Hoover, by phone. She said she was shocked to hear about her her son's involvement in the case. Boy, I never thought that's one of those cases where you, I just never thought we would hear what the resolution of it was. That is the 1984 cold case murder of Christine Jessup. And that was Global News Toronto reporter Karen Lieberman. I mean, if you were, you know, of a certain age, probably above the age of 20 in the 1990s, and you remember the name Guy Paul Moran, it was all over the news. And now they can definitively say it was never him, that it was this man, Calvin Hoover, who died in 2015. This is Mornings with Simi. Despite the fact that we have been living with COVID-19 for months and months now, I think people still have quite a few questions. That's why Global News reporter Jeff Semple set out to try to answer some of them from viewers and listeners right across the country, all having to do with the latest information that we know about COVID-19. And he had a chance to talk to our Nikki Reitmeyer about that. This first question is one that's on the minds, I think, of so many families all across Canada, and that is, what should they do about trick-or-treating this year? Can you do so and do so safely? Yeah, that's a tough one, obviously, facing families uh, everywhere right now. And the advice from public health officials across the country when it comes to Halloween is a bit of a mixed bag, no pun intended. But uh, the good news is that according to the experts we've spoken to on this, relatively speaking, as far as sort of annual events go, Halloween is 
pretty safe. So that's the good news for those potential ghosts and ghouls out there. You know, this is an outdoor activity for the most part, trick-or-treating. Masks, of course, already a key ingredient for many people on Halloween. So, uh, you know, for the most part, health officials say this this can be done as long as it's done safely. Uh, Canada's top doctor, Theresa Tam, said that very thing this week, saying that as long as people keep their distance, um, you know, make sure you wash your hands, sanitize them before you eat anything, and use prepackaged treats. Um, you should be okay. But, you know, the, the advice really does depend on, on where you live. Um, you know, in Ottawa, for example, or in New Brunswick, health officials, they're asking people not to go trick-or-treating this year, depending on where you live. Uh, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control has called trick-or-treating a high-risk activity. Um, so I think, you know, there is, it's important to recognize that there can be transmission, but the experts we've spoken to say that as long as you're doing the key things, washing your hands, keeping your distance, and, and you know, you should be okay. Now, this next question that you received from a viewer, I find really interesting because I actually don't know anything about this at all. And the question comes from a viewer named Tina, and she says, I would like to know more about the connection between blood types and the severity of infection. That has me really curious. Yeah, it's an interesting question. And there, in fact, has been some new research just out on that this week. A couple of studies, in fact, one done out of the Netherlands that found that people with blood type O were less likely to get COVID-19 in the first place. Another study, a Canadian study, found that critically ill patients with COVID-19 were less likely to have blood type O. So it would suggest there's a possibility that people with O blood type might be less vulnerable to the disease and less likely to suffer severe cases of it. Now, you know, experts are stressing that there's more research needed here, um, that, you know, they're not sure there's a link. And even if there is, why is there a link? You know, but it's not the first time that we have seen potential links between a blood person's blood type and, you know, their likelihood of contracting an infectious disease. Uh, norovirus, for example, that, that nasty stomach bug hits people with O blood type harder than those with A and B blood type. So it's interesting, warrants further study, but certainly isn't a reason for anyone with an O blood type to let their guard down either at this point. Hmm, very interesting stuff. I don't even know. I know I don't have O blood type, but otherwise I, I have no idea what my blood type yeah, is. Me neither. Point. Me neither. Yeah, right? I forget. I forget every time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, another question that you got from a listener pertains to transportation. Someone asking, is it safe to take their baby to the airport and then to take their baby on an airplane? Yeah. So, you know, airports, you know, obviously there's the potential for infection there, but airplanes are interesting. Um, you know, we've asked experts about this and they say, in fact, one of the safest indoor public places you can be during this pandemic is inside an airplane. Really? That might seem, yeah, counterintuitive and a bit surprising, yeah. as you noted there. Uh, and in fact, we've seen a survey just out the other day that found two-thirds of Canadians would not feel comfortable flying right now. Uh, you know, you just picture the inside of an airplane, right? But of course, you know, it's easy to forget that airplanes have that unique configuration that include an extremely aggressive ventilation system. And we've heard how important ventilation is in combating this pandemic and trying not to get sick. There was a study just out that was done by the U.S. Department of Defense with United Airlines, and they found that if you are in a plane that is packed full of people, but everyone is wearing a mask, the chances of infected particles entering another passenger's breathing space were 0.003%, so virtually non-existent. Now, the study did not account for people moving around in the airplane or taking off their masks to eat, for example. But, you know, pretty interesting finding. And it is consistent with what we've heard from experts on this. Um, you know, one expert looked at the, the, uh, basically more than a billion airline passengers during the course of the pandemic, 44 cases 
where someone is known to have become infected with COVID-19. So in other words, according to one expert, the odds of getting COVID-19 on an airplane, if people are wearing masks, are, you know, similar to the odds of getting struck by lightning. Wow. On one of the other sort of locations where we hear that you can contract the virus. Now, of course, we know that the airplane thing is, uh, like you said, a bit of a misnomer. However, we hear from the CDC that small gatherings are one of the biggest threats to the spread of COVID-19. But I know a lot of people are wondering why. Yeah. And, and, you know, the director of the CDC came out and said that this week, that as they are seeing cases rise across the country, hospitalizations rise across the United States. One of the drivers of that, according to him, is these sort of what he called small indoor gatherings. Now, he didn't define small. Exactly how many people is he talking about? We don't know. We've been told, of course, many times to avoid large indoor gatherings. You know, here where I am in the province of Ontario, the limit is set at 10. But, you know, the concern from health officials is that people are taking precautions when they're out and about in public indoor spaces. They're avoiding large gatherings, but then they'll have, say, a few people over and let their guard down. And that is what they're seeing now as a, as a driver of transmission. And so the advice there is, of course, to make sure that even if it's just a small number of people, that this virus loves indoor situations where there's poor ventilation people are gathered for a long time even if there's just a few people you know if you do that once or twice a week there's potential for transmission jeff it was lovely chatting with you Uh, nice to nice to talk to you again yeah likewise and uh, happy halloween happy (laughs) halloween to you as well That is our global news reporter, Jeff Semple, asking some of the current questions about COVID-19. Some really interesting ones there, too. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, getting help to businesses that have been hurt by the pandemic is a huge priority. It gets talked a lot during this election. In fact, NDP leader John Horgan was asked about his government's economic support for B.C. small businesses during the debate yesterday. We did put a targeted amount in our recovery plan towards the tourism industry. And we also put a $300 million fund in place for small businesses, which include tourism operators. The tourism operators asked for a task force. That was their idea. So we could all sit down and figure out how we deal with the challenges ahead. British Columbians wanted our borders closed. That has a profound impact on the tourism sector. Okay, so there is that money there. Problem is, a lot of those businesses are having trouble accessing it. We wanted to talk more about that now. Vivek Sharma joins us, the Vice Chair of the Tourism Industry Association of BC. Vivek, thank you very much for being here. You're very welcome. Good morning, Simi. Good morning. Tell me, what has it been like for businesses? Have you heard from them about trying to apply for these grants? Yeah, I mean, you know, first and foremost, I think we need to acknowledge that any help that, you know, provincial, federal governments provide is, is highly welcome, you know. So um, it, it, it's, um, it, it's, I, mean, I want to acknowledge that. And um, the, the challenge specifically with the, uh, you know, small and medium business recovery grant is just some of the, you know, there is still not complete clarity around the criteria, the application process. So, uh, you know, businesses are having a very tough time in kind of navigating uh, through that. So what can this money be used for? If a company does get it, what can they do with it? I mean, the purpose is to help in in cash flow. But when you when you look at some of the criteria, uh, you know, there are a few uh, hurdles which, uh, you know, the businesses need to cross even before they can think of using it you know um, a key one is you know that um, the business should be operating in bc for at least three years 
Now, we all know that uh, the tourism industry was, you know, one of the fastest growing sectors in BC, you know, for the last four or five years till 2018. So if this criteria was to be maintained, we probably would have about 400 to 500 tourism businesses, which may not qualify for this. You know, that's about 3% of, uh, you know, uh, the total numbers. Uh, And then in certain regions like the Thompson Okanagan, which had a much higher growth than the rest of the province, that could be as high as 8 percent. So that's, uh, you know, that that's excluding a a large chunk of uh, tourism businesses already. And I know it's been particularly difficult in Metro Vancouver. A lot of the hotels, even the big ones in downtown, still closed. Is there any eye to reopening? Is there any way that they can get on the path to opening up and operating again? Well, I think the path to get up and operating again would be through, you know, uh, through through some help from the government, you know. Um, no business uh, gets into the business to shut their doors, you know. Businesses get in the business because they want to employ people and, you know, pay taxes and all of that stuff. So it's it's uh, closing down businesses has, has been hard on business operators. And, uh, you know, I'm sure everybody will understand and appreciate that this has not been their first choice. So what happens now then for the industry, Vivek? Are, are we at the tipping point or do you think given the government support, federal, provincial, you might, you know, the industry might be able to wait until next year? Uh, no, I think we are at the tipping point. You know, like I said, every, every support that the governments have provided is, is appreciated. But, uh, you know, that was just a starting point. And, you know, there's a lot more that needs to be done especially uh, to get us to that finishing line of, you know, summer of next year um, when, you know, there is hope of, you know, recovery and, you know, more travel and so on and so forth. What about the idea of of having more Canadian tourism, like people from other parts of Canada coming here, or are we still waiting for international tourism to come back? Uh, I mean, you know, any kind of tourism is welcome. But uh, there are there are many studies which have shown that the the spending patterns of international tourists is much more than the domestic tourists, you know. So, uh, you know, and, and, and as operators, we welcome every tourist with the same warmth and genuine hospitality that British Columbians are known for. However, uh, you know, the just the the the. the a, just through sheer numbers, you know, domestic tours cannot make up the numbers that were coming in through international tours, you know. Right. So we can uh, try, then, but it's not the same. It's not the same, you know. And then when we go back to that average spend per tourist, that that, that adds another uh, element of difference that is very difficult to um, fulfill just through domestic tourism, you know. Yeah. So, Vivek, then what is your message to the government or whoever forms the next government? I think our message has been the same and consistent from, you know, the get-go of this pandemic that, uh, you know, we are a crucial cog in the British Columbian economy. You know, we are a sector which binds uh, not just large centers like, you know, Vancouver, Victoria, but also small communities together. There are many communities in British Columbia which would literally collapse if tourism was not to pick up again. So the plea is to uh, make sure that we are provided with the resources, the financial resources, so that uh, we can, uh, you know, live to see the summer of 2021. All right. We'll see what happens. Vivek, thank you very much. 
You're very welcome. Have a great day. You too. That's Vivek Sharma, who is the vice chair of the Tourism Industry Association of British Columbia. And you know, so many tourism operators do need that help. They need that boost, uh, the tourism and hospitality industry. And there is this program that the provincial government put in place, but many of the operators are saying they're having trouble qualifying for it. They don't even, the, the process of getting that grant money is so cumbersome and troublesome that a lot of them just aren't able to access it right now. So that is obviously going to be a big issue moving forward because these operators and businesses need that financial help. And as Vivek pointed out, they're all just trying to hang in there until next summer when they hope things will start to get back to normal. This is Mornings with Simi. As you've been hearing in the news, Lori Thronis is no longer a BC Liberal candidate. This comes after weeks, in some cases months, of people asking Andrew Wilkinson to remove him from the BC Liberal caucus as well. But what happened yesterday was a little bit different because once these latest controversial comments had surfaced, you actually had many BC Liberal candidates speaking up right away, saying that they found the comments to be reprehensible. One of those candidates who spoke up was Jazz Johal, the candidate for the BC Liberals in Richmond, Queensboro, and he joins us now. Good morning, Jazz. Good morning, Simi. So why did you feel it's so important to get your thoughts out there right away on this story? Well, I found the comments uh, to be appalling. It was, a, it was a tough day. And those comments that came from Mr. Thronis didn't, doesn't represent me, does not represent me, doesn't represent the party or the party's values. And so the minute I heard uh, about what was stated, uh, I spoke out. You know, I, you know I, I don't personally believe those comments that Mr. Thronis made. It wasn't, he didn't misspeak. Um, you know, those comments about eugenics were highly offensive. I believe they were calculated on his part to reflect his views uh, and his broader um, concerns about uh, uh, culture war where society is going. Uh, and those are my personal opinions. Yeah. And they should never have been made anyway. And um, he's been a former staff person in Ottawa, so he's not a new candidate or a candidate that hasn't had experience in debates or in media. Um, you know, these, in my personal opinion, were highly calculated comments, and I find them to be offensive. And the moment I found out about them, I, I commented right away on how appalling they were and how reflective of myself, my colleagues, or the party. What kind of a problem has this been behind the scenes? Because clearly we saw some of that hearing from some BC Liberal staffers on this as well. Uh, was this an ongoing issue, asking leadership to deal with this? Well, you know, what I can say, look, I'm not going to talk about what, what has or has not been discussed in caucus. Those comments stay there. But I can tell you publicly and privately, uh, I have never defended uh, Mr. Thronis. Uh, and that's what offends me more than anything. I have told Mr. Thronis to his face that he will not use the BC Liberal Party as a proxy for his broader cultural wars. He just will not do so. I've uh, stated many times, you know, I've been raised by uh, Sikh parents, Orthodox Sikh parents who stayed true to their faith, even when it wasn't very hard, easy to do in this country in those early days. He says he is a man of faith. Defending the rights of women to have access to uh, free contraception, defending the right for women to have control of their health care, understanding that gay, lesbian, and transgender brothers and sisters um, have more, we have more work to do to making sure this country is free of discrimination so they feel safe walking our streets and they're part, full citizens in this country. We are not there yet. And that's what my parents raised me, uh, my Orthodox parents raised me to believe. Just- and by doing so, by doing so, let me finish here, yeah. it didn't diminish their faith. 
And Mr. Thronus's faith is not diminished by defending this. In fact, it strengthens your faith. And that's his faith. So that's why it offends me more than anything. When you speak up for groups that are underrepresented, it doesn't diminish your faith. It strengthens your faith. And that's something Mr. Thronus, I think, needs to understand. And in this case, these comments, uh, he clearly doesn't at this point. Are you worried about the impact this is having on the reputation of the BC Liberals at this critical time? No, because I think people like myself are speaking out, Alexa Liu, Matt Pitcair, my colleagues in Richmond, uh, Todd Stone, Peter Millibar, and many other of my colleagues. It does not reflect our values. We're the party that, look, we had a premier who was a woman, uh, Christy Clark, elected by the people of British Columbia with a party of the carbon tax, pleading climate change is real, and we have to do something about it. So this discussion around Mr. Thronis does take up noise, but it's been dealt with, and he will not be speaking on my behalf ever, and the people of, uh, and the people here in his party. Do you he wish- is entitled to his opinion. I get that. And there are social conservatives, and I, ref- and I respect their views. Uh, but when you start talking about eugenics, uh, you've gone beyond the yeah. line, and it's time for you to go, period, full stop. Do you wish, though, that this had been dealt with sooner? You said yourself that you had told him to his face that you didn't like some of his comments. Well, you know what, look, we have a broad coalition and there are times we contradict each other or at the very least we'd have discussions where we may not agree on things. That's just part of being a big tent party. Uh, you know, Mr. Thronis's opinions around being a social conservative, like I said, I don't have a problem with a lot of these opinions. I'm okay with people who are pro-life. A good chunk of your audience, our voters, Absolutely. are pro-life. I have no problem with that. Um, but when you start talking about eugenics, when you start talking about the rights of gays, lesbians, and transgendered people, whose journey is not complete in this country, I draw the line. Um, so I think you have to be patient with your colleagues because we're not going to agree on anything. You don't agree on everything on the NDP side either. But this is beyond the pale. And like I've said, um, this is a, not a trend, but certainly he has been doing this for a long time where he has been talk, more concerned about a broader culture war than about what's, what's right for the people of British Columbia. And that's my personal opinion. And the minute I heard that, I called him out on that. It's not right. And I think the people of British Columbia do understand what the PC Liberal Party represents. And Mr. Thronis can go and do what he needs to do now, but he certainly isn't going to be a PC Liberal to do so. All right, Jess, thanks very much for your time on that this morning. My pleasure. Appreciate that. Jess Johal, BC Liberal candidate for Richmond, Queensboro, uh, saying what he thinks, uh, you know, his personal opinion, he said, about Laurie Thronis, now former BC Liberal candidate. And there's much discussion about how many people behind the scenes had been pushing leadership to do more about this weeks ago, if not a couple of months ago. That leadership, of course, rests with BC Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, here is some good news for all those WHL fans out there. The Vancouver Giants will be hitting the ice again. Things will be a bit different, but they are going to be doing this. We've got all the uh, dirt on this to let you know what's going to be happening. Joining us now is Dan O'Connor, Director of Media Relations and the play-by-play broadcaster for the Vancouver Giants. Good morning, Dan. Good morning, Simi. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Hey, this is good news. This is really good news. Uh, This has been a long time coming. Um, Really, since since mid March, uh, we've all been uh, in, in a very long state of limbo. So when uh, you know at about three o'clock on Wednesday, when when the January eighth start date for the WHL season was officially announced, uh, there were a lot of folks, myself included, who you know, took a nice deep breath, uh, kind of an exhale, if you will, and and you know feeling as as encouraged and as upbeat and as optimistic as ever, really. 
uh, especially with what we've all been dealing with for the past seven months. Yeah, no kidding. So tell me, how is this going to work? How are you making this happen? Well, I mean, um, there, admittedly, there is still a lot of work to do. And, um, you know, the governors, the, the managers, the business staff, uh, and, and league officials, they've been working around the clock really since March just to get us to this point where we've got uh, a date. So, so the, the work is only going to intensify. But, but now, essentially, what you're looking at is you're looking at, you know, six different regions, you know, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Alberta, B.C., Washington, and Oregon. Um, they're all going to be working individually to make sure they are ready uh, for January 8th, um, working in unison with health officials to make sure that uh, all protocols uh, and all measures are in place to guarantee the safety of, of fans, uh, guarantee the safety of, of staff and volunteers, and especially, above all else, just ensuring that the players are going to be in an environment where they are safe and they are able to play with, without fear or without anxiety of, of what, could have, you know, what could be out there. So, Dan, does that mean that fans are actually going to be allowed to see the games? That's the hope. And that is something that I know that the WHL and, and the, you know, the six different you know, health authorities are going to be working aggressively to try and do. Uh, obviously, at this point, there's there's a lot of moving parts to that, and, and nothing can be guaranteed quite yet to that to, you know, to that point. Um, speaking purely just from a Vancouver Giants standpoint, we would love nothing more than to be able to play with with fans in the stands, and you know, to to have the energy and to have the encouragement from fans. Uh, it's certainly the goal. Um, whether that is going to be in effect as of January eighth. Uh, remains to be seen. Uh, I know that the the long term big picture goal for, from the league and just simply from an economics and a viability standpoint is to have you know fans in the seats. Uh, that's the goal. That's right. what we're all hoping for. That's what we're moving towards. Uh, but we can't guarantee that at this point. Also, I guess you can't guarantee. You got to figure out how many because you certainly can't have everybody come back. No, for sure. And, and I mean, you know, really from the onset of, of these discussions, the WHL has had a, uh, you know, a 50% capacity goal in mind. Right. And, you know, some uh, some jurisdictions are, are in better shape than others when it comes to that. And I mean, of course, you know, in British Columbia, we still have a, a fair amount of work to do, even just with getting, you know, figuring out where, where the government is going to be at in late October and what the messaging from them is ultimately going to be moving forward into November, December, and, and ultimately into January. But right. um, the, the goal, again, remains to, to have fans and, and to have that option from a, from a business standpoint. So what, what has the WHL done here? I understand that they've also enlisted like a chief medical advisor to help them make some of these decisions. For sure. And that, that is really a, a smart decision in my mind because now you've got You've got somebody who can communicate with the training staff. You've got somebody who can communicate um, with with all 22 different teams, and and somebody who can ensure that the the league wide protocol is being uh, delegated responsibly to the other, you know, to all 22 teams. That the message is the same, and and that no lines get blurred through all of this. And you know, if if this thing is going to to work successfully. Obviously, we all need to be bought in together, uh, and right. we, we have to be kind of united to make this work. And so, to have 
you know, for lack of a better term, to kind of have a, like a, a chief health official kind of to govern all of this at the, the WHL level is a, is a really, really good thing in my, in my opinion. Right. Okay. So other leagues uh, have banned like body to body contact just to play it safe, you know, for the players. They've done that in Quebec. Is the WHL considering, you know, changes to the game like that? I know that question was brought up yesterday with, with Commissioner Ryan Robinson during a media availability call. And, and the sense I got from that is, is that isn't really something that the WHO is, is considering, and that has not been a, a, a widely had conversation. I, I mean, I think when you look at the, the essence of hockey, physicality, contact, um, and, and I'm not talking about fighting. I'm just talking about just simple body checks and, and, and using your body and physicality right. to, to help your team win. Uh, I'm certainly of the mindset that that's a crucial component to success on the ice, and I do not anticipate that that's going to be a thing. But right. uh, there's still a lot that remains to be seen, but, but I don't think those conversations have seriously taken place yet in the WHL. All right, Dan, thanks so much for your time. No problem. Thanks, and have a great weekend. You too. That's Dan O'Connor, Director of Media Relations and a play-by-play broadcaster for the Vancouver Giants. WHL, they're heading back to play, so the players are going to be reporting to their clubs after the Christmas break, and the season right now is scheduled to start on January the 8th. And as you heard Dan say, they're working towards getting fans in the stands, like perhaps as much as 50% capacity, but they haven't fully worked out all of those details just yet.